0: Hey, I'm Natasha Crane,
1: and I'm Elisa Childers. Welcome to Unshaken Faith, where we equip you to live your Christian faith boldly in a chaotic culture.
0: There's a good chance that many people listening to this have never heard of the Orange Organization. But it may be the most influential organization you've never heard of when it comes to church curriculum for the next generation. So just to give you an idea of the scope that we're talking about today, according to the Orange website at thinkorange.com, they have 10,000 plus partner churches, influence over 1 million kids and teens per year, and serve over 80 denominations. They also report that 49% of the fastest growing churches use orange. Elisa and I, as well as our friends, Krista Bontrager and Monique Dusan over at the Center for Biblical Unity, have long had concerns that this widely used curriculum is primarily moralistic, meaning it's focused more on so-called good values rather than on the gospel, and that it's becoming increasingly progressive. In fact, a year ago, the four of us did a 2.5-hour live stream to discuss our concerns in detail. If you'd like to see that, you can look up the video called When a National Kids Ministry Starts Promoting Progressive Ideas on Elisa's YouTube channel. But in today's episode, we want to focus on three recent things which we think demonstrate our continued concern, particularly on the progressivism part, and bring awareness to these issues. We think that churches should take this as an important and urgent warning. But first, on a brighter note, Elisa has some exciting announcements about our Unshaken conference.
1: Well, we are coming to Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills here in just a couple of weeks. So all of our Southern California friends, we'd love to have you come out and join us for the Unshaken Conference. You can go to unshakenconference.com to register for tickets. There are still tickets available for that. And I've got an exciting announcement about Tucson and Nashville. So Tucson is going to be on September 23rd and Nashville will be November 4th. Those tickets are now on sale. So go to unshakenconference.com to pick up your tickets, and there are a limited number of early bird discounted tickets available. So hurry up and grab those at unshakenconference.com. So today we're actually going to skip over our tips of the week that we typically do, but uh, that's because we think that today's subject is so important, and we wanted to leave as much time as possible for it. So the only tip of the week that I have for today is to please share this episode with everyone you know. Please share it with your church leaders, anywhere you know where people might be using the Orange Curriculum. Uh, Don't forget what Natasha said in the intro. There's one million kids and teens who are influenced by this curriculum every single year. And if you're somebody who is listening to this because somebody sent it to you, especially if you're a church leader, we know how difficult it is to be in ministry and to make these kinds of decisions. And we're just asking you to keep an open mind, pray about what the Lord would have you do. We realize that it is not easy to change curriculum and there are so many complicated moving parts with all of that. So we're just asking you to keep an open, in mind, hear out what we have to say, and then take it to prayer. Okay, so the first thing we want to talk about at some length is an article recently published by the president of Orange, Kristen Ivey. So it's a really good example of the kinds of concerns we keep having about Orange. The article is called, Why is the Gospel Good News? And the subtitle says, as we prepare to share the gospel with kids and teens this Easter, we need to consider why the gospel truly is good news. Well, that sounds good so far, but then she goes on to say this, and this is a quote. As ministry leaders, we do what we do because we want to give kids and teenagers hope. But what does it mean to give hope? Maybe hope feels different to different people because people are different. You know, as ministry leaders, the key to the hope we have is the gospel, end quote. So this starts to get a little problematic right off the bat. It seems a little strange to say that ministry leaders do what they do to give hope. I would hope that people in ministry are there because they know and love the Lord, and they want to make him known and his truth known. They want to teach the Bible. They want to disciple those in their care. This is first and foremost. Of course, there is hope that comes from knowing this truth, but it's a derivative of the truth, not a primary reason for ministry. And she does say that the key to hope is the gospel. But again, that's a backward relationship. We shouldn't be looking for a key to hope, but rather for what is true and then to line up what we believe with what is true. So this might seem like a small point, but it's actually Quite important because if you really look at orange materials, you'll see that over and over again, it's very focused on meeting people's felt needs. So, in this example, it's the felt need for hope. People are looking for hope. And that's where a lot of the problems lie. It's this hyper focus on feelings. So, uh, I'm really curious to get your take on this, Natasha, because your professional background is in marketing. And on our live stream, you talked a lot about the issue with felt needs in ministry. Can you just expound on that a little bit?
0: Yeah, so every marketer knows that people basically have two kinds of needs. There are real needs and then there are felt needs. So real needs are needs that everyone has regardless of whether they think or feel they have them or not. A good example here is that the gospel is a real need. Someone may think they don't need to hear about Jesus, but the objective reality is that they do. It's a true, real need. Felt needs, on the other hand, are those things that we feel like we need, whether they have an objective basis in reality or not. So marketers use information about people's felt needs as sort of a backdoor to influencing them when consumers don't think they have a real need for a product. So let me just give you an example I think we can all relate to. Everyone has a real need for exercise, but many people don't feel that need until around New Year's, right? (laughs) So if you're marketing a gym membership and you recognize this phenomenon, you're going to advertise in December and January, not in September. You still have a real need all year long for exercise. You just didn't feel that. It didn't become relevant to you until the beginning of the year when you have some New Year's resolutions and you ate too much over Christmas. Well, throughout the orange materials, you can see a hyper-focus on felt needs, and I give several examples of that in their strategy documents that we discussed on the live stream. So if you want to see more about this and what we're talking about, you can look at that live stream for some extended thoughts. But I want to emphasize it's not problematic per se to use an understanding of felt needs in ministry. It can actually be really smart to reach people. But if your execution doesn't successfully tie to the real need of the gospel, if you're not making that connection, you can end up with really big problems because you just end up giving people whatever they want, whatever they feel they need, regardless of what is actually true. So let's see how exactly that happens in this article. Ivy goes on to say, quote, But as we prepare to share with kids and teenagers this Easter season, we need to wrestle with these questions. How does the good news connect to their situation? How does it matter to them? To say it another way, why is the gospel good news? End quote. So, so far, that's okay. This is a typical felt-needs approach. But then she says this, quote, Paul shares, I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, 1 Corinthians 9, 19-32. If you want the good news to sound like good news, you need to understand why it's good news for everyone, end quote. Okay, so the verse is used completely out of context here. Paul was explaining to the church that he didn't make use of his full rights as a Christian, for example, to eat food sacrificed to idols, so as not to become a stumbling block to the weak. This has nothing to do with changing the gospel message itself to ensure that people hear whatever their felt needs indicate they want to hear. And that's exactly what Ivy suggests next, using this verse as a justification. So, Elisa, go on to read that next part.
1: Yeah, and this is where it just really gets so problematic for me. So from there, she says, quote, One way to better understand people is to understand five worldviews that influence how people see the world. These worldviews also help us answer five questions. What is the problem they see in the world? What is, how does this person feel? Who is Jesus to this person? Why is the gospel good news? How does this give hope? Now, I have to restrain myself. Even just those are not actually the worldview questions. It's not about um, how you feel about the world or who Jesus is to you. Uh, it, it, those those are all about our personal feelings. The questions, the worldview questions, are what is wrong with the world? How does that get fixed? Not just how that affects you. So we're off to not a great start here. But the second worldview she lists is called conflict and vindication. So here's how she describes it. And this is a long quote, but bear with me because you really need to hear what she's saying here. So this is where the quote starts. What is the problem? Oppression. Someone with this worldview sees the abuse of power in the world and how oppressive systems have persisted. How does this person feel? Someone with this worldview feels angry and is ready for a revolution. They feel like a warrior who wants to bring about change. Continuing with the quote, she says, Who is Jesus to this person? Jesus is the Messiah and liberator. Jesus understood oppression and came to make things right. Why is the gospel good news? Jesus came from the inconsequential town of Nazareth to topple the system and defeat the oppressor. And finally, she says, How does this give hope? There's a new kingdom and a new earth. In the new kingdom, the last will go first and the first will go last. We know this is good news because Jesus often talked about the good news and the new kingdom at the same time. And quote. Okay. So first of all, um, I just want to point out a problem with this whole approach. Essentially what she is saying is that rather than give somebody the objective truth of the gospel, we're going to show them how they can add Jesus to their already existing worldview. How can Jesus fit in to how this person already sees the world? Hey, if there's somebody who sees the world through the lens of oppressed versus oppressor, great. Jesus can fit right in with that and not really um, bring you to have to repent of that worldview or change that worldview. You can just fit Jesus right in with that. And that is incredibly problematic because nowhere in here does this really explain the real gospel to somebody who might have an oppressed versus, versus oppressor worldview lens. And also Jesus didn't come to topple the system and defeat the oppressor, you know, defeat the oppressor. And that could so completely mislead kids into accepting a progressive gospel rather than The actual one, right? This is sort of some of the problems that we observed with the He Gets Us campaign. uh, That if you haven't heard that episode, go back in the archives and listen to it. It's presenting a social justice warrior Jesus, which isn't the Jesus of the Gospels. So, just as a reminder, this was written by the president of Orange. Now, we don't have time to go through the full article and discuss the other quote-unquote worldviews that she lists. But as one other quick example before we move on, just under the emptiness and fulfillment—that's her way of uh, approaching that worldview—emptiness and fulfillment—she says that Jesus is, quote, the example and model. Jesus is God who became human to show us that humans have value. Now, look, I'm happy she's acknowledging uh, Jesus' deity, that Jesus is God, right? That— kudos. That's great. But Jesus did not become human to show us we have value. This is exactly what was wrong with all of the marketing campaigns for their conference last year, what was so focused on humanity and the value of humanity. Jesus explicitly said that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. That's found in Mark 10, 45. So all of this that Alisa just said, where we're talking
0: about kind of the felt needs approach gone awry, I want to give you an example of how you could use felt needs in an actually legitimate kind of way. Here, she's actually changing the gospel to meet whatever someone feels, however they see the world. A legitimate use of felt needs, just in contrast, that I often talk to parents about when a parent says, hey, my kid's just not interested in all this apologetic stuff. They don't want to hear about it. Well, I talk about finding situations situations that will make it more relevant to them when they feel the need for apologetics. And that can be a great time to be able to teach them something. So for example, you might sit down at dinner and say, hey, we're going to talk about the problem of evil tonight. But when you say that, maybe your kid just doesn't want to hear about right then. However, if something horrible happens in the news that everyone's talking about it, they might then feel the need more than they ever have given that situation to better understand, well, how did God allow that to happen? Okay, That is speaking to a felt need at that time to then give them the actual message, the actual talk about suffering and the problem of evil in the world from a Christian perspective that maybe they always, well, they definitely always had a real need for, but maybe they didn't always want to discuss. That's an appropriate use of felt needs. You didn't change the message about the problem of evil and suffering. All you did was you utilize a time in which it felt more relevant to someone to then say, hey, well, now let's talk about that. And as I always talk about with parents, that doesn't mean we always wait for something to come up in order to address that. It's just one more opportunity to do that that makes it easier than other times. So I just want to kind of give that contrast. Again, please know we're not being nitpicky and pointing this kind of thing out. We continually find in Orange Materials and their social media things that are either explicitly wrong, as in the example Lisa gave with toppling the system, Or things that just aren't quite right, like Jesus coming to show humans that we have value. That just isn't really a a primary purpose, so it's a strange thing to say. Well, moving on from the article, here's a second thing that we really want you to know about today. Dan Scott is the director of Orange's 252 Kids and Preteen Curriculum. He's also a very progressive Christian, if his social media is any indication of his beliefs. Given that he is the director of this curriculum that's being used by thousands of churches and influencing hundreds of thousands of kids, We think those beliefs are important to tell you about. Most churches using Orange for their kids' curriculum, at least in our estimation, are not progressive. So we think that those churches who hold to the historic Christian faith should know that the strategic mind or one of the main strategic minds behind this appears to hold some very different beliefs than what they might assume. I'm going to give you some examples, but first... I just want to make it abundantly clear. We're not claiming he's a bad person. We're not claiming he doesn't have good intentions or that he's not a Christian or anything else of that nature. Sometimes people jump to those kinds of conclusions. That's not it at all. We're simply looking at his public social media and bringing public awareness to the fact that the director of Orange's Kids curriculum appears to believe things that would likely be concerning to a lot of the churches using this material. So let me give you some examples. First, he lists his pronouns in his profile. If he feels the need to do that, it suggests to us that he is pretty steeped in progressivism, but that's the least of the problems here, to be honest. He also continually retweets quotes by well-known progressives like Rob Bell, Brian McLaren, Richard Rohr, and Carlos Rodriguez, just to name a few. So it's really clear that the community of progressive authors and influencers is really who he looks to and affirms when you look at the nature of the things that he is posting. Then, looking at some of the most recent tweets on Easter, he quoted Pastor Josh Scott saying this quote, Easter is about being transformed, raised up in this life to bring about healing and justice in the world. There's a new generation of people who are tired of going to tombs when resurrection is possible. End quote. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, very blatantly, this is not what Easter is about. Easter is not about us being transformed somehow so that in this life we are going to bring about healing and justice in the world. This is, this is very much outright a progressive kind of application of Easter. This is not what Easter is about. Easter is about Jesus being raised from the dead and all that that means to us. It is about Jesus. This is not an accurate portrayal of what Easter is, but it starts to make a lot of sense why he's quoting someone saying this if you dig into this a little bit more. So what you see in that tweet is that he's quoting a pastor, and then he says, quote, Josh Scott with the heat this morning. That's the name of the pastor. So presumably that indicates that this was the church in which he attended Easter service, if not the church where he attends regularly. Well, if you click over to that pastor's profile, he says he's the pastor of Grace Point Church in Tennessee. That church designates itself as a progressive church. So we're not reading into this. This is a proudly progressive church. And this pastor that Dan Scott is quoting labels himself in his profile as a, quote, heretic. He identifies his pronouns and says he is a rainbow ally. Again, that's the pastor of the church where it at least appears that Scott worshipped on Easter and who Scott quotes approvingly.
1: Well, and this is a local church here in Nashville that I am very familiar with. Grace Point Church is a very, very, very progressive church. In fact, a couple of years ago, they had a meme on their social media that went viral. And the meme said, The Bible is not the word of God. In fact, I recorded a live stream. You can go back on my YouTube channel and and find that. But it it was viral because they were basically saying the Bible is not God's word. We should stop seeing it that way. That is their view. They are fully affirming of all the LGBTQ plus identities. Um, This is a big deal. This is a big deal. In fact, several years ago, maybe four or five years ago, the children's pastor from Grace Point did a guest post on another progressive parenting site, claiming that teaching kids about the resurrection and about the atoning sacrifice of Jesus could actually be psychologically damaging to them. So she was trying to tell uh, parents how they can talk to their kids about Easter without psychologically damaging them. And of course, that would be by not bringing into it the idea that Jesus was dead and then was raised to life. So this, uh, I'm just telling you that I know this church, this church is so radically, it's radically progressive. This isn't just slowly sliding. This church is radicalized. And so If the concerns about Scott aren't clear enough yet, I'll just read you one more uh, retweet of his. It says this, quote, believing the Bible is clear is harmful because if people disagree, it must be because they are evil, purposefully ignoring its clarity to sin or ignorant, not smart enough to understand what's obvious. In other words, it forces us to see dissenters as either ignorant or evil, end quote. So just let this sink in. The director of the kids and preteen curriculum for this extensive and massively influential ministry, one million kids a year, says it's harmful to believe that the Bible is clear. There there is so much more in the feed, uh, but we need to move on. So we'll we'll provide a link in the episode description for those who want to review uh, the content for themselves. But please, let me just ask you guys, please do not harass this person. Please do not attack him on social media. Please just use this as something that you can go to and look and see what it's all about and prayerfully decide what God would have you do uh, in your church and with the influence maybe that you might have in your sphere. So... uh, As a brief final example of a recent issue, the Orange Leaders website, that's orangeleaders.com, published an article a few weeks ago called Resources on Racism Every Leader Should Watch read, and share. The list included books like Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist, Austin Channing Brown's I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness, and Be the Bridge by Latasha Morrison. All of these, to varying degrees, are steeped in contemporary critical theory, critical race theory, and some very unbiblical ideas. If you're not familiar with these books and why they're problematic from a biblical perspective, we really encourage you to go to Neil Shenvey's website for detailed reviews and my opinion, he's the best voice uh, out there speaking on an academic uh, level, but also be able to translate for the lay level on some of these books. He writes reviews, and that's ShenviApologetics.com. So definitely go there and check out those reviews. And for those who do know these books, it should be shocking that Orange is promoting them to leaders, it, in particular, Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist.
0: Yeah, it really is shocking to see that and this is an article that was just published I think in February so we're just talking a couple of months ago it's that recent interestingly I think that article was originally published in in some kind of form back in 2020 at the height of all these conversations when everything was happening so somebody might look back in that and say well it wasn't clear yet what some of the content was and people were just responding to what was happening in a culture uh, you know maybe give some grace but the article was basically copied and pasted and just updated a little bit. And so it's the same resources. They've had three years to consider Mm. what they're recommending. It's the same thing. And they're still recommending these resources. So very, very shocking and concerning. And this is on the Orange Leaders website for the people who are leading Orange. So when we did the live stream, we had lots and lots of emails from people and comments saying, <laughs> what should we do? <laughs> what do we do next? And honestly, that could be an entire other episode. And we we know that this is already going to be an episode that goes, goes longer than our normal one. We just thought it was so important that we said, okay, if it goes a little long, that's okay. Uh, but we we just want to leave you with at least a couple of points here if you're wondering what to do now. First of all, you may well have no idea what curriculum is being used in your church's children's ministry. So now is a great time to find out. Shoot an email to the ministry director and simply ask. Just say, hey, I was curious. I've been hearing a lot about curricula lately. What do we use in our church? I don't even know. And I'd just love to know what we're using. Second, if you find out your church is using Orange, we encourage you to go watch our long live stream that we keep talking about from last year before you approach your leaders, because it will tell you a lot more than what we were able to cover here. And you really should know as much as possible before you say something to your leaders. We'll give you all kinds of more context. And that live stream also has more just about kind of the moralism aspect of Orange. Today we talked more about the progressive concerns, but in that live stream we talked a lot about how this felt needs kind of approach ends up making it so the lessons tend to be focused on the good values and not necessarily tying them back to Jesus. So that's a whole other part of this uh, that you should really understand. So go back to that live stream and watch it. Once you've done your homework, graciously ask the appropriate person in leadership, hey, are you aware of some concerns that people have raised about Orange? So see what they have to say. Maybe they're aware of it and they've already come to some conclusions, they've done some research or maybe they have no idea what you're talking about. So ask some questions first just to see if they know. And then you can consider sending a link to this podcast, hopefully it's short enough that someone will listen to it, as a brief introduction. And then perhaps you can also include a link to the longer live stream for more depth if they're interested in learning more. But third, and importantly, don't expect your church to change overnight. The reason that so many churches use Orange is that it's super easy to use. It's a plug and play. It's very professional. It really minimizes the prep that's needed by volunteers, and that is a felt need of many, many mm-hmm. churches. So on the surface, you would probably not note a lot of the things that we're talking about here. You'll likely encounter some resistance because of that. You'll have unsuspecting Sunday school teachers who may not have noticed these things. Things and they'll push back, hey, this is great. It's easy to use. I haven't noticed these things. And what you have to understand is that there are a lot of lessons that are just fine. We're not sitting here saying every single lesson in orange is a problem. None of them teach the gospel. They're all progressively. We're not saying that. We're saying that there are a lot of problems with various lessons that you'll find. We're saying that there's problems with the strategy. When we dug into the strategy documents in our live stream, we're saying that there's problems with the progressive ideas that it appears that many leaders in the organization hold, and we talked about two of them today, those are things that we're saying. We're not saying every single lesson has a problem. So you've got to understand that when you approach your leadership. The issues that we're talking about, therefore, can go undetected by people who are using it. They're just not aware of the issues and it's not on their radar. So be willing to meet in person with your, readership, your leadership rather, to try to discuss things on a deeper level. It's probably going to require that.
1: Yeah. And also, I I don't mean to open up a whole new can of worms, but I'll just throw this out there for our listeners that if you want to dig a little deeper on this, but now Mops is also partnering with Orange. So the influence you know, is going to even a greater degree. So gosh, I hope this has been helpful for you. Thanks so much for listening today. Um, If you appreciated this episode, again, please send it to uh, church leaders that you know, friends who might be interested in the information. Don't forget to subscribe to the Natasha Crane podcast and the Elisa Childers podcast for long form episodes where we go deeper into topics like these. But for now, let's remember that as Christians, we have a firm foundation to stand on that as Psalm 62 puts it is our rock and salvation, our fortress, where we will never be shaken. (music)